A few weeks ago, my wife and I were talking with an osteopath and he made the comment to us that the problem with modern medical school is that they teach the patient that 85% of their diagnosis comes from the history, the intake form, which means that the doctor receives this piece of paper, they read over it, and they now believe that they are 85% of the way to a correct diagnosis and they've not even met or looked at the patient yet. And he said, doctoring is supposed to be about using your brain and thinking through the process to arrive at a proper conclusion. And when you believe that you have this magical shortcut where you read a couple pencil marks on a piece of paper and now you know what's happening in this patient's body, he said, the death of medicine will be the death of diagnosis. That when we stop evaluating the patient and seeing what's and determining what's really happening in this unique individual, and we just want to have a couple boxes and throw them into it, that that is the point at which we are no longer able to help our patient, at least not to the fullest extent that we should be able to. And in listening to this, my wife acknowledged that something very similar happens in dentistry, and I was kind of forced to recognize something similar happens in chiropractic. And so I began to think about that, and I realized that I've had a number of patients, I would say over the last five years or so, who would make comments about what other chiropractors would do and I generally live in a bubble. I don't know what other people do, nor do I very much care for the most part. But um, there was one particular doctor and they said, oh, when you come in, he just has you lay face down and he just starts doing his thing. He doesn't even ask you any questions or anything. And I thought, well, maybe he's an outlier, but as time goes by, I've kind of looked into it and I came more to, the, more to the conclusion that this is becoming common practice in chiropractic, that the assessment is being thrown out first and foremost because if you don't take the time to figure out what's wrong with your patient, then the one thing you don't have to deal with is the fact that you might have been wrong. So I, it certainly preserves the ego to not have to take a detailed look. But I began to wonder, well, when it comes to the assessment, what should we do? Or maybe what should we not do? Because we have a lot of things, especially in the Gonstead system, that are prescribed. But one of the questions I get a lot has to do with palpation. What is the correct way to palpate a patient? because you don't find a lot of that. Like, we want a system that's gonna make it efficient, but we also want a system that's gonna keep us from making careless errors. And so, as I said, one of, the, one of the common errors to avoid has to do with laying your patient down versus seated. Many doctors, many Gonstead doctors, uh, palpate their patients while sitting in the cervical chair. And that's not just for convenience, although it might seem that way, it's actually because it's going to be a better assessment. So the vertebral joints, the discs, but also even, even the facet joints, uh, even the SI joints, they are weight-bearing joints. Their purpose is to bear weight when we are in an upright position. And so the only correct way to evaluate them, if you're looking for dysfunction, or if we made it worse, call it pathology, would be to do it in a seated position or at the very least in a weight-bearing position. If you wanted to do it standing, standing is also valid. I don't find it to be as convenient or easy, but I will say I have palpated people standing before, especially if they tell me that the worst position is sitting and they're in so much pain they don't want to sit. Okay, well you're standing, so I can evaluate that standing. What I can't do is evaluate them lying down. And so as I thought about that, I thought, you know, you might be inclined to give a little pushback to that 
And you might be inclined to think to yourself, well, can you prove that? And so I thought, all right. So I did a little hunting in the literature because I even wanted to convince myself, am I really true? And one of the things that came up, because I've thought about this one a whole lot, has to do with leg leg measurements. It's, it's, there's no shortage of people who will come into your office, ask you about a short leg, but then say how some other doctor measured their leg with a tape measure or did some other measurement. And you ask them, well, were you lying down or standing up? Oh, I was lying down. And they're just sure that this other doctor is so qualified in what they did. And yet, is that really a valid measurement? So I looked through a number of studies. They all showed the same thing. But one particular study was a systematic review done by Martin Alfuth in 2021. So that was about as recent as I could find. And what they determined was that uh, non-weight-bearing leg length measurements are, have no validity and no reliability. They're virtually worthless. And so there are, of course, a number of techniques that rely on non-weight-bearing leg length measurements that, oh, your leg is short, so now we got to adjust you, and then your leg's going to straighten out, and now we know you're better. But that's not actually a valid measurement because one thing that's being ex excluded from that is any anatomical difference. So let's make a hypothetical. Let's say that you have a huge lay length difference. Let's call it 10 millimeters. So you have an anatomical difference of 10 millimeters. If I lay you down and I adjust you and now your heels match, what do we know? <laughs> we know that somehow that 10 millimeter anatomical difference is hiding. And so if you have an anatomical difference of 10, should your heels match? And the answer is no, they wouldn't match because you have an anatomical difference. And so that led me, I always try to think of how can I communicate this to patients quickly and efficiently so they get it, but I don't waste a lot of time. And one of the ways that I do that is when patients talk to me about a short leg, I'll tell them if the person who told you had a short leg could not tell you how much of it was functional and how much of it was anatomical, then telling you you have a short leg is of almost no value. So if that's a concern and we need to look at it, we need to look at it from the perspective of being able to decipher how much is anatomical and how much is functional. And one way we can do that is with a standing x-ray. And then I explain to them why it needs to be standing. So we can very quickly go through this. And it's my way of kind of discrediting whoever the other person was without being too obnoxious about it, but simply showing that they were oversimplifying something that's actually quite complex. And this is what tends to happen with leg length measurements, is it's very common for people to try to oversimplify it, when in fact it is actually complex. And to me, when somebody can retain the complexity of it, then I go, okay, this person might actually know something about short legs. But when it's a very simple, oh, you just have a short leg, we're gonna lay you down, we're gonna adjust you, when you stand up, it'll all be fine because your heels matched. Way oversimplified, because you haven't distinguished anatomical from functional. And so I also tell patients that we can make an adjustment to help the functional side, but you're not gonna make an adjustment to fix the anatomical side. That requires something different. Um, heel lift would be one option if we, if we have to go there. So as we think about these concepts, we realize that it's not enough to the idea through, that same study by Martin Alfuth showed that the most reliable method of measuring leg length inequality was with a standing A to P x-ray. And the reality of the fact is that we do those as part of our system 
most chiropractors don't do them at all. Uh, and most imaging centers, I, I had an imaging center that was willing to do them for me, but I've definitely had a lot of pushback on trying to get those done, especially to evaluate lay leg differences. So we see that not only is the way that it's typically done not of much value, but that we're the only ones doing a method that actually does have value. And I think that's important, and I think you need to have the, um, the courage to share that with patients because the research backs up and supports what we're doing. It does not support the other, the other position. And I think that as I, as I looked at this whole topic, one of the things that came up, and it seems a little off course, had to do with IQ. Now you might be thinking, what does IQ have to do with anything? But IQ is, at its basic root, it's a, it's a measure of your ability to recognize patterns. And more specifically, it's a measure of a person's ability to see similarities in two things that are seemingly dissimilar. And so when it comes down to the root of it, that is basically what diagnosis is, is it's the recognition of patterns, it's the recognition of things that are similar and connected when they seem to be disconnected. And so I would venture to guess, although I don't know of any studies to back it up, but I would venture to guess that the best diagnosticians are probably the ones with the highest IQs. Now, I guess if we think that through to conclusion, you could be a good diagnostician with a high IQ, but be a terrible adjuster and still not get your patients better. Or you could be a great adjuster and be able to move things well, but still struggle to get to get patients better because you're not identifying the similarities and so your diagnosis is off. And so it's always a challenge to me when you recognize that there are more than one ways to screw this up and there's only one way to get it right. That is inherently a challenging thing and anything that has that uh, as its basis is going to be challenging. Like they say that hitting a baseball is one of the hard, uh, from a professional pitcher is one of the hardest things in sports, okay? But when you think about it, there's a lot of ways to miss the ball. There's only one way to hit it. And that's what makes it inherently difficult. So when we think about the whole IQ thing, what's interesting about that is that there have been many attempts over the years to try to improve people's IQ. Most of them, actually almost all of them, have failed. They found that they made no IQ change. So a lot of the things you've probably heard, even things like playing classical music for your baby when they're little will help them develop a higher IQ. Yeah, that's been shown to not do that at all. Uh, so then it goes on and on and on. But only recently have they started to discover a system for increasing IQ. And what it has to do with is recognizing, basically it was recognizing the basis of the test and what the test was testing for and then using games to build those skills. And so the skills are learning to recognize similarities between seemingly dissimilar things. And that as you improve that skill, you actually can raise the IQ. Not something super dramatic, but you can raise it up and make it higher. I think that for us as chiropractors, we should all be working on building that skill. Not, regardless of where you are, it doesn't matter if you have high IQ, low IQ, middle IQ, it doesn't matter. Wherever you are, you can improve that skill set. And improving that skill set will make you better at diagnosis. And being better is always better than not being better. So. I don't think it's necessary for everybody to run out and get an IQ test and figure out where they are and is there any hope for me. Wherever you are, you just start working on building that skill. Uh, and so I think you can do this even in your office. You just start focusing your attention on trying to figure out where do I see similarity in things that aren't so similar or that seem dissimilar. And for a while, I would recognize them, but then I wouldn't write them down or memorize them. So then the next time I saw it, I'd be like, oh, this is really familiar. And, I, and I'd have to refigure it out all over again. And some things I did that a bunch of times before I finally got smart enough that I was like, 
you know, I should start taking notes and keep a journal and write these things down. And so that's what I would recommend you do if that's something that you're working on, is when you see a pattern, write down your thoughts about it. Uh, when I see, uh, this is how I came up with one, there's a certain pain pattern that comes from L5, I figured out eventually, that runs along the top of the iliac crest. And so I kept seeing this, and this top of the iliac crest pain that people would complain about was not fixed by sacral adjustments or iliac adjustments, but then I started to notice the pattern that they would go away with L5 adjustments. But I didn't memorize the pattern, so every time I would see uh, somebody who had complained of pain on their upper iliac crest, I was like, oh yeah, this is familiar, I remember this, what is it? I finally wrote it down, and then over time, we could go back and look and be like, oh yeah, that's what it is. So that's why I would encourage it, that things like that, strange patterns you see, um, strange complaints people have, write them down, write down your thoughts about what it is, and then as you eliminate things and realize it's not making a difference, cross it off the options until you can narrow it down and start to notice patterns, because that's really what it is, it's pattern recognition. It doesn't mean the pattern's 100%, but there is a physiological reason for why things happen the way they happen. And so if you can find the pattern, then you can go back and you can determine the physiology behind the pattern and why that pattern is working the way that it is. But you don't need to know the physiology on the front end. What you really need is the pattern. And I think that if you really focus on that pattern recognition, you'll find your diagnostic skills go way up because that really is what diagnosis is all about in the long run. other area in this regard that I think I need to discuss is that I've joked for quite some time now that I need to develop a diversified recovery program because if you're the kind of chiropractor who sees patients who have been to other doctors and especially if they've seen diversified doctors and especially if they've seen diversified doctors for years I I get I've seen a number of patients who come in and they say oh I've I've been seeing chiropractors for 40 years okay well I'm gonna guess most of those chiropractors weren't very good just a wild guess it could have been you never know but you almost have to assume the worst, because if it's the worst, then I can fix it, and if I'm ready for it. If it actually ends up being much better than I expected, well, that's great. That's, that's easy to handle. I can handle that easily, but I almost have to expect the worst. And so um, I started looking at, I, I started noticing common things that happened with patients who had seen diversified doctors for a long time. And one of the things that it's taken me forever to finally let this sink in, and then one day it hit me, and I realized that there are many things that we instinctively, as Gonstead doctors say, no, we don't need to do that, it doesn't need to happen, only to then find out that my little paradigm was being busted by these diversified patients because their misalignments, their subluxations, did not match normal biomechanics patterns. And then I started to realize, well, if a person had a really bad car accident, would I expect their subluxations to follow normal biomechanics? Well, no, because high energy force is going into the body at strange angles and things are just gonna happen. Well, sadly, a lot of these diversified people, their situation is not too much different. And so I started seeing how diversified patients, their bodies were being were violating biomechanics. And so there were, there were rules that had to be broken because they weren't normal subluxations. This wasn't somebody who slept funny one night. It wasn't even somebody who had a trip and fall. This is somebody who was hit by a high rate of force at a probably, possibly, abnormal angle and it was causing trouble so I, I kind of put together a list uh, working from bottom to top of the things that I think are, are most common and so the first one is the bilateral SI subluxation now we talk about this sometimes 
because even in the chapters it talks about the fact that you can't have a bilateral SI subluxation. It doesn't happen very often. We would say the majority of the time, it's certainly less than 5% who have it subluxated on both sides. But if you're seeing patients who have seen been adjusted to VersaLite a lot, I would say that percentage raises way up. And so you have to actually consider both sides of the pelvis. And so when you're doing your palpation, you're doing your exam, and you catch yourself thinking, this person might have subluxation on both sides. Well, if they have past experience, especially a lot of past experience with getting diversified adjustments, that is quite possible because what tends to happen with diversified adjusters is they just they only adjust one listing. And it's based on preference or whatever. Most of them adjust everything as a PI. That's what I've seen. They all adjust PI ilium, so they push up and they push out in an ASEX direction. And so if they're pushing in that direction, what will often happen is they'll correct the, a, the PI portion and drive it up, but as they push out, they make the EX worse. Because if you're doing PI adjustments on people with PIEXs, um, I'm sorry, if you do a PIIN on somebody with a PIEX, you're going you're to reduce one part of the subluxation while making the external rotation worse. And so a lot of those people, you end up doing EX pull moves, PIEX pushes, and you're, and you're driving it back into the sacrum because that's where it's been driven, knowing that it's a man-made subluxation. And it is possible that they have that same subluxation on both sides because the diversified doctor is probably gonna adjust both sides of the pelvis and they're gonna adjust them both as PIINs. So that's just something to be mindful of and think about because um, you don't wanna neglect it just because you say to yourself, well, that doesn't follow the rules. We shouldn't have that happening. That's not normal mechanics. And you're right, that's not normal mechanics but it is something that can be man-made. Um, my next one uh, is the lower thoracic upper lumbar subluxations. You find these more with patients who have been getting a lot of anteriorities. The typical pattern is they will be extremely kyphotic in the low thoracics. They will then dish almost like a mini lordosis through the mid thoracics, and then they'll have another kyphosis in the upper thoracic, T1, T2, T3, and then they'll go into a hard lordosis in the neck. That posture, when I see that, I always ask them if they've had anteriorities done because anteriorities drive that. And the reason why is that where that lordotic dishing is in the middle is usually where the doctor's putting their fist or whatever they're putting for their anteriorities. And then as they're putting their body weight and driving it down, what they're doing is they're actually driving posteriority above and below the fist. And so that's why you get a lower thoracic that goes posterior and makes a hyperkyphosis and you drive an upper thoracic posterior and get a hyperkyphosis and the fist holds everything else forward. That is a very abnormal posture and position of the spine. And so what I have found in those situations is a lot of times you cannot immediately go after the upper thoracic one because there's too much pressure from that anterior dishing. The best course of action is you've got to go to the lower thoracic and you've got to get it fixed first. And as you are able to get that, that segment, P to A, and get it back where it belongs, you will start to pull out that dishing and it will flatten out. And that's what you should look for is for it to flatten out and not be so lordotic. As it flattens out, that will then give you a better foundation to go back and set the other upper thoracic. If you try doing them both right off the bat, things could go very poorly. Also, you'll find that upper thoracic often has a pretty significant amount of rotation to it. So that's another reason why if they, still, if they have a lot of lordosis through the middle thoracics, and then they've got a rotated, say, T3 or T2. There's so much pressure in there that you can feel the pressure, but even if you get it to move, they're probably gonna complain that it hurt and that it feels worse. So that's why my caution is don't be hyper-aggressive with that one. Get that lower thoracic fixed first, draw that back, 
and then you can fix the upper one. And to be honest, at this point, I'm not shy about telling people where it came from. I used to feel like I needed to cover for them and hide it. Be like, I don't know how this happened, but let's just get it fixed and play that whole game. But now I'm just like, you know what? Let me just tell you where this happened from. Um, and here's why. And usually when you explain it, you can, I'll even stick my fist right in that lordosis and show them how it exactly matches with, with my fist. And I go, it shouldn't be a surprise where this came from. And then they start going, oh. And they'll say, but they got such good adjustments that way. And I'll say, no, no, they made a lot of noise that way. But if they were making adjustments, you would not have this distortion of the spine. So anything that's creating a distortion of the spine is not an adjustment. It's actually an abomination to the biomechanics. And the biomechanics are fighting against it. So it's not an adjustment. It's simply uh, a noise, I guess, in the end. Okay, if we keep going up, there's another one, and that is, um, I've talked to people sometimes about doing, uh, adjusting upper ribs, T1, T2 ribs, and I do them seated. And the question comes, well, how come you have to do upper thoracic ribs when Dr. Gonstead didn't have to do it? And to tell you the truth, I learned how to do upper thoracic ri ribs from Richard Thornton, and at the seminar where he taught it, somebody asked him the same question. And he didn't really have much of an answer for it, and he said, I, he kind of said, I don't know, but he kind of came back to, well, um, all I know is it's there and when I do this it fixes it so how can I not fix it if I know it helps and that's a decent answer I think but I kept thinking about it more because I was like it really is true why are we having to do this when they don't and I came to a couple conclusions one of them being that in Gonstead's day and age uh, people were not driving cars that went anywhere near as fast as we do like I can drive down the freeway and I can get passed by some tiny little smart car going 85, 90 miles an hour. Whereas in his day, cars were like big and luxury boats and people didn't drive 90 miles an hour to get where they were going. It was almost like a luxury to just kind of cruise. And so, and the cars were built different. I mean, they were, you, my grandpa had an old Datsun truck and it, it didn't look like anything special, but he used to joke that he could drive it through a brick wall and it, you wouldn't even know the difference. Um, like that's how they were built. They were just solid. So. I realized that I think a lot of the upper rib problems are the result of whiplashes that people are suffering uh, for various reasons. Um, it could also be a deconditioning of our neck muscles because we spend so much time sitting on computers, on phones, that deconditions the muscles. And then if you do, at that point, get a whiplash injury after the deconditioning, you're that much more likely to run into big time problems from, from a whiplash. So. Um, I think upper, upper ribs are one that I look at a lot. And so then, as far as I relate it back to my diversified recovery program, um, I think it has a lot to do with uh, the way the neck is adjusted. So um, I'll give you, a, here's a simple little test and you can do this on yourself and you'll see. Hopefully you've done this before, but if not, uh, it's a good lesson. So if you take, if you're sitting, sitting's good. You can even lay on your back if you want to, but either way, if you're sitting, uh, look down as far as you can and then look to the left and to the right. And see how little you move. And that's because you have ligaments that restrict that motion. Whereas if you look up, look towards the ceiling, and then look right and left, and you see how much you move, because those ligaments now have slack in them. And so now think about a diversified adjustment. You're laying face up, most of them will put you into flexion. And so now, as we've just seen, when you go into flexion, you restrict the movement. You pull the ligaments tight. So now as you go into rotation, it takes less rotation to make something move, to force some kind of movement out of something. If you were to try to do a cervical rotary adjustment like that in extension, you have to go way further 
which would be terrifying if somebody actually did that. But I think that that's why most get the idea that maybe they don't want to do it that way, so go into flexion. But as you go into flexion and you create that rotation, the ligaments that are pulling and the muscles that are pulling, many of them attach to the upper ribs, T1, T2 rib. So as you create that quick motion and the muscle can't elongate that rapidly, it's got to pull mainly on its um, origin, which in many cases is the T1, T2 ribs. So most likely the big loud cracks they're getting when they do that is the sound of them subluxating T1 and T2 rib. Uh, and that's just kind of the conclusion I've come to because when you get people like that, you almost always have to fix their T1 and T2 rib. And what happens that makes it really complicated is you can have a really bad rib on one side and yet when you look at the subluxation of the vertebra that's, that's connected to it, say T1 rib and then T1 vertebra, the T1 vertebra will be say a PRS or a PLIT. But then it's the left rib that's causing them all the trouble. So you, it's really, you can't really set the rib and get that vertebra fixed. So you gotta set the vertebra first and you fix the vertebra with your regular adjustment. And then you come around and you set that left rib into it now that the verb is right. And that was basically how Dr. Thornton taught us how to do it. Uh, and I've used that for years and it works very, very well. But like I said, I have to do that a lot after car accidents and people who have had a lot of diversified adjustments to their neck. Um, along with that one goes the shoulder blades. And I've talked a little bit about the shoulder blades before, but the shoulder blades, that muscle just kind of continues right up. It goes, the, the muscles that go to the neck, it's mainly the, the scalene muscles, anterior scalenes. They come from the top of the shoulder blade, they pass right through the upper ribs and then they end up in the C2, C3 areas, they hook in. And so there's a definite connection there. You'll have patients come and they'll say it hurts here and they start pointing at the side of their neck and they draw a line down to the upper part of their shoulder blade. That, that, that pattern, that pain pattern, again, pattern recognition, that's usually a shoulder blade problem and you have to fix the shoulder blade first and then the rib and then, and then if necessary you can go in and fix the neck. Uh, but you just start in that pattern, you just follow along and whatever's messed up, you fix it in that order, but if it's not messed up, you let it be. So the upper ribs and shoulder blades go hand in hand and for the exact same reasons. Um, there's two more, and these are kind of odd. Um, the next one is C3. Uh, C3, partly because of what I just described, how the anterior skeins hook into the side of C2 and C3, but C3 gets in trouble because what a lot of diversified doctors like to do is they like to go for the upper cervicals. They can get a lot of rotation out of C1. Um, and so if you over-rotate C1, what will often happen is you'll subluxate C2. You'll drive it out. Uh, that's, that can happen. But I'm finding more and more that if you use a lot of force, as many of them do, um, or if they bind up the C2, then it translates down to C3. And that's a whole lot trickier because if you've never, if you're not, experience with adjusting C3, if you haven't done a lot of them and you find yourself thinking, man, I don't think I've ever adjusted a C3, they're tricky. I'll just tell you that on the front end, they're tricky. And the reason why, you can look at a dry spine and see this, uh, C3 is much smaller than C2. And so, and C2 has that giant spinous process. So when C2 falls back and down, its spinous process covers the spinous process of C3. And that makes it very difficult to get in on C3. So you have to open up the joint, get your contact on C3, then you can close the joint back down and hold your C3 contact, and C3 has to be kind of snuck underneath C2. It's, it's a tricky adjustment, but when you can get good at it and move them, uh, I've seen C3s change people's lives. I mean entirely. It makes chronic migraine headaches go away in one adjustment. It makes um, nervous system problems. I had somebody not too long ago, arm pain bilateral arm pain, and it was a C3, and when that C3 was gone, the arms were better. So C3 can change lives when it's bad, and a lot of C3 problems come from too much jacking around on the neck and too much rotation, and it will drive it out. So 
uh, get good at get good at palpating C3 first. Know where to find it. Know you're on it. Know you got it, and then try to try to build the ability to know that you can adjust to C3 anytime you need to because C3 is definitely a big player in some of these uh, post post injuries, post diversified adjustment kind of thing. And then the last one is the occiput. We don't adjust a lot of occiputs, but I definitely see a higher rate of occiput subluxation following long-term diversified adjustment, uh, especially if they're doing like occipital lifts, things like that. Uh, there's so many different ways to mess up an occiput that way. Um, because once you lay a patient down, you can gap that joint. So what's the natural instinct? They, they traction it. Or once you traction it, you've opened that joint. And we know that the occiput's best position is in the lowest, most inferior position. That's when it's secure. As soon as you open it, you now have the mobility to move it almost anywhere. And so if you're tractioning it open and then you're whipping it right and left or lateral flexion or anything that they want to do, they can put that occiput almost anywhere. So I definitely see a higher rate of occiput subluxations post long-term diversified adjusting. So those are my simple tips for my diversified recovery program that when you have somebody who's had long-term diversified, they may very well have subluxations you don't typically look for, things you don't typically expect, and things that you might just write off right off the top of your head because you say that's not biomechanics, that's not how it works. And you, you want to give the patient a lecture and tell them, well, no, I don't need to adjust both sides of your pelvis because that's not how it works. And yet in that patient's case, that is how it works because somebody did it to them. So just something to keep in mind and think about moving forward. So I hope that helps you in the long term. Thank you.